Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 275 of our Tick Boot Camp podcast. The title of today's interview is Community Healing, an interview with Dr. Casey Kelly, LLMD. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. So folks, you're not going to be disappointed with this podcast episode. We did a special Instagram Live with Dr. Casey Kelly. This was a really powerful community event where members of the Lyme community gave us questions in advance via social media polls and even live questions during the event to get feedback from Dr. Kelly to improve and fast track their Lyme disease healing journeys. So if you want to learn some tips and tricks on your Lyme healing journey, then this is for sure the podcast episode for you. Without further ado, Lyme literate medical doctor, Casey Kelly. Hey, Dr. Kelly. Hi, guys. We are really excited to have you, Dr. Kelly, as always. I want you to know we've only done three Instagram Lives, including this one, and you are two of the three. Right? <laughs> oh, I feel so honored. Thank you. Well, we're honored to have you, as always. And, of course, folks, uh, if you are not familiar with Dr. Casey Kelly, she is one of our favorite doctors in the whole world. In fact, I shared with everyone um, last year that uh, when I was bitten by a tick uh, and I was jumping up and down about uh, having to uh, find a doctor, one of the things that Matt Sabatella reminded me, as I had said after we interviewed Dr. Kelly on our podcast, that if I had ever gotten bitten by a tick or somebody in my family ever got uh, Lyme disease, that I'd get my butt on a plane and go to Chicago. So when Matt had reminded me of that, of course, the next thing I did is I called up my friend, Ali Mresker. I said, Ali, can you get me in to see Dr. Kelly? And it was a great experience. And one of the reasons why it was a great experience is I had actually lost faith in the medical community after having a bad experience a couple of years ago with my former primary care physician, and I regained faith in the medical community after working with Dr. Kelly. So I want to thank you for that, Dr. Kelly, uh, among so many other things. And I also want to share with you, uh, this past weekend, I, we had a really feisty interview with a really brilliant woman who was attacking medical doctors. And I said, stop attacking medical doctors. Dr. Kelly's brilliant. So we, uh, we ha I, had, I had you as a, as a, as a vehicle for um, people regaining faith in the medical community. So I uh, thank you for all that you do. I thank you for joining us today. And um, so one more thing I want to say before I let Matt uh, speak, uh, I, I don't want to dominate the entire uh, early part of this, is that- uh, Too late for that, Rich. <laughs> All right, well, so this is Lyme Disease Awareness Month. One of the things we love to do during Lyme Disease Awareness Month is to invite um, the experts in the community, uh, and not just the medical doctors and the naturopathic doctors, but the people who have been on the journey to share a Lyme tip. We have our Lyme Tactathon, which is a brainchild of Matt Sabatello. And one of the things we wanted to do this year is we wanted to do sort of a follow-up where we would do a couple of Instagram Lives with some of the doctors that we have a lot of respect for and sort of use, that, use our, our Lyme Hackathon and the questions that people are coming up with as a vehicle for asking the, uh, the experts in the community some questions that are triggered by the Lyme hacks. And as it turns out, today was Dr. Kelly's Lyme hack, and uh, it was brilliant as always. And now you folks are going to have an opportunity to ask some of your questions. Some of you have sent questions in to us. Matt and I, of course, are going to ask our questions. So this is the uh, vision that we have, that we're going to do a few Instagram Lives. And the first one, of course, had to be with the Dr. Brilliant. Uh, with the doctor, with the brilliant Dr. Casey Kelly. So uh, Matt, go ahead. I'm sorry. So I just want everybody to know if you're watching this and this will be available on demand because we did have Susan Hutchinson couldn't make it. And one of the questions she submitted was, will it be available on demand? And the answer is yes, this will be available after it's on demand. And we're also going to be airing it as a podcast episode on June 15th. So this will be available on demand as well, because a lot's going to be said that you're going to want to be able to write down and digest in a more slower manner. So we're going to do that. But also Dr. Kelly is somebody who has had Lyme disease herself. So Dr. Kelly is a Lyme literate doctor who has helped countless people that we know, Rich and I, and she's gone through the journey. 
She understands, she gets it, and she's constantly keeping up with science and medicine to help the Lyme community. So we have a lot of great questions from the community. Rich and I have some questions we came up with on our own, and we're really excited to challenge you, Dr. Kelly, to see you know where your views are on these things. And I think we want to jump right in with a really common question here that is beneficial for me and almost everybody in the Lyme community. We had Nick from at nature underscore underscore ND. He wants to know what suggestions do you have, Dr. Kelly, for people dealing with inflammation and Lyme disease, especially when you're treating or you're early on. It's a really common problem that's associated with pain, problem sleeping, and there's a lot of things we can do to help while we're battling and healing from Lyme disease. So what suggestions do you have for everybody watching today in dealing with inflammation associated with chronic Lyme disease? That is such a great question. You're right. It's definitely the kind of the underlying driver for a lot of our symptoms with these chronic tick-borne infections. So first I would say diet. Diet's the first one. Food is medicine. And so if you are eating inflammatory foods, you're going to be more inflamed. So when you're really sick, especially, you need to really pay attention to what food you're putting into your mouth. So you have to cut out all the bad stuff. You have to cut out the gluten and the sugar and the dairy and really try to eat more vegetables and more fruits and, and healthier foods that are not going to add to that inflammation. Um, also, there's some really good supplements that will help to lower the inflammation as well. And so that can play a role. Things like fish oil, even vitamin D, vitamin C. One of my favorites is called SPM Active, which is from fish oil, but it's not fish oil. Um, it's actually a pro-resolving mediator. So it resolves what does that mean? inflammation. Yeah. Um, so there are kind of two parts to inflammation. One, we make inflammation, and two, we resolve it. So when, say, you sprain your ankle, right? Your ankle gets swollen. That's inflammation. It's healing. And once it's healed, then the inflammation goes away, right? That's a normal working inflammatory process. Our Lyme patients, you know, they're not, they're not so normal when they want to when they work this way. So they tend to get inflamed, but they don't remember or they don't have the tools to reduce that inflammation. So there are supplements like turmeric, regular fish oil, things that help block you from making more inflammation. But these pro-resolving mediators resolve the inflammation that's already there, which is pretty cool. It's a pretty unique product. It comes from fish oil. Like I said, it's not fish oil. Your body can make its own, um, utilizing things like butyrate, but it's really helpful to get extra from a supplemental form. So those are just a couple of tips. But Dr. Kelly, can you give us some specific products? So for example, I use Apex Termoro, which is something that Allie and I talked about that's helped me significantly when I'm having a bad day, whether it's a headache, pain, et cetera. What are some specific products that you support and recommend to your clients that can help like Apex Termoro, possibly CBD, specific things you can, you can share with everybody watching right now? Absolutely. So SPM Active is by Metagenics that I, I mentioned. Um, the turmeric products that I use tend to come from orthomolecular enzymogen, so Turiva um, from orthomolecular and Curcuplex 95 from Zymogen. Um, what else will help with that? So glutathione can help as well. I tend to use, again, ortho or Zymogen products in capsule form, although you can use liposomal forms, although a lot of people find them really disgusting. They just taste horrible, um, and I'm not sure they work all that much better, to be honest, than the capsules. Um, let me think, because this is a this is a Herxheimer question, really at its core too. When you're having a bad day, how do you help yourself feel better? Um, so my other things that I use are charcoal or other binders. Um, Alka Seltzer Gold is a good one that helps to make you more alkaline because we get really acidic when we're inflamed and toxic. Um, 
I have so many more, but for some reason I'm coming up with a blank on more of them right now. But no, but I have a really good follow-up question, Dr. Kelly, on that. So one of the things that you're talking about here is binders, right? To help you when you're having a bad hurt time reaction. But one of the questions that came in, and I'm trying to find who it was from, is if you are in a moldy environment, is it safe to take binders every day to help counteract the mycotoxins that you're inhaling? Or is that something that people should be cautious of if they're living in a moldy environment and it's going to take a little bit for them to get out of that moldy environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think it's safe. You know, when it comes to these toxic exposures, one of the most important things we can do is reduce our exposure. So getting out of it in that environment, if we can, but not everybody can, right? Sometimes we don't have that option and we have to kind of stick around and make it work. So I do think it's safe to stay on the binders. They're, they may not help as much as you want them to because you're constantly getting, you know, more and more toxin there, but it can help at least kind of keep things a little more static status quo, if you will. Um, I don't have a problem keeping people on binders for a long time. It is very theoretical that it can also leach out your minerals or other nutrients. But if you're going to be on them for a long time, you can also replace your minerals and, re you know, with drops or pills as well to help counterbalance that. So I, I don't really find that to be an issue. So look, I'd like to explore that mineral topic. I don't know if Richard probably wanted to jump in here, but we recently interviewed somebody who talked to no, about the, the benefit of drinking you know, uh, uh, filtered water first, tap water. And, you know, the, if, if you start to drink filtered water and, and different types of water, you're not getting the minerals that you typically get in regular water, right? So they yep. mineralize to help offset that. And I think there's over a hundred minerals our body needs to be healthy, right? So can you talk a little bit about that, the people that are trying to be healthy and drinking, you know, clean water, what they're missing out on and how they can offset that to maintain that healthy balance and getting the best of both worlds. Yeah, such a great point because our water can be rather dirty. And I we have a reverse osmosis water filter at home that we drink out of. We use Berkey water filters at work, which remove virtually everything. And when you removes everything, like you said, you're removing all those trace minerals and things that you need as well. And if that's your main water source, it is important to make sure that you're getting those elsewhere. So you need to get drops or pills to replace those. I myself use drops, concentrates trace minerals um, and or they have little power packs that also have some vitamin C and some electrolytes in there as well. Um, we'll also use element, LMNT electrolyte packs too, but I think it's those trace minerals that can make a difference. And honestly, sometimes when people are really, really sick and depleted and they can't tolerate much of anything else, slowly building up those trace minerals helps immensely. And I know for me, it really does help my energy when I, when I take the trace minerals on a regular basis. So Dr. Kelly, you had, um, your line hack today was about uh, tick testing. Uh, if you find a tick, uh, you are recommending that uh, we send the tick out for testing. Can you talk a little bit more about why you think testing a tick is a good thing? And is there a downside to sending a tick out for testing? Well, there's a downside to your pocketbook because it costs some money to do that. And if you live in a Lyme endemic place and you get a lot of tick bites, then, you know, it could cost a lot of money for that. But if, if that tick is attached to you and it's been attached for, you don't know how long, especially if it's engorged, you should absolutely send that tick in for testing because we're much more likely to be able to find the bacteria, parasites, viruses, et cetera, on the tick itself. You know, the tick will be dead by then. And they can do their magic in the lab and figure it out. Finding these infections in the human body 
is tricky and really hard, especially immediately with the tick bite. It takes a while for us to be able to, because often we're testing the secondary reactions are our, our, our body's auto or our body's antibody reactions to the infection, not the infection itself. Unfortunately, it was a, a lot of our testing is. So it's just really, really hard. And then the doctor then can take that and go, oh gosh, you were exposed to not only Borrelia or Lyme, but also Babesia. So I'm going to treat that differently than if you just got a Lyme exposure. So it helps the doctor figure out how to treat you too. So one of the things that made me a little bit anxious after I had my tick tested before I treated with you was that my tick came back clean. But of course, there's a limit to the number of different microbes that can be tested. And there is a limit to the number of strains that can be tested. So I decided to treat despite having a tick that came back clean. But it did create a little anxiety in should I treat, shouldn't I treat? And knowing that a, that a tick could harbor as many as 200 different microbes, but we're only testing for six or seven of them, um, do you think sometimes the, you know, there is a, a, a trace element of anxiety that's created by getting a test, uh, a, a test that comes back clean with the tick? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's no certainty to any of this, and I think that creates anxiety on so many levels. You know, as a physician treating these patients and myself, you just have to kind of settle in and be okay with the gray zone and not knowing everything and not having anything being black or white and cut and dry. So that's why I think it's really important to partner with your physician and your provider and work with them because you like everybody has to work together to figure this out and decide what makes the most sense for you and your situation and, and how you can move forward with treating these. So Dr. Kelly, let's talk about risk a little bit. Stanley McChrystal recently wrote a book on risk, entitled risk, and he said that risk is actually a, a formula. It's a vulnerability times threat. And if we were to use that as a definition for, um, for the Lyme disease and risk of Lyme disease, do you think it's both factors, both vulnerability and increased threat that's causing an increase in uh, the amount of tick-borne diseases? And give us your thought on, on each one of those pieces. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I do. Actually, I think there's such a multifaceted issue that we're dealing with. So the threat of these ticks, I think, has gone up thanks to climate change and global warming and those things. Um, we're, we're seeing more numbers, like we're seeing more ticks than we used to. Um, and the human body itself, you know, we've just been exposed to so many more toxins over the last several generations that are accumulating in us. Like I have toxins from my grandparents, from my great grandparents, they're in, in me still. And these things accumulate through the generations and, you know, all this, you know, the smog and the, all the, you know, all the different things that we have to deal with in this toxic, you know, kind of soup that we live in. So our bodies are different. Our terrain is different than it was, you know, 20, 50, 70 years ago as well. So the human body itself is more vulnerable um, as well, um, especially, you know, if you're not taking care of it, if you're eating fast food and you're smoking cigarettes and you're drinking too much and you're not sleeping enough and you're not taking care of your stress, et cetera, that, you know, that is going to make you more vulnerable to getting a more severe disease as well. And of course, if you're exposed to heavy metals and you're exposed to mold and you know, and, and I'm not going to go down the um, down the um, the possibility that you know we have we have militarized our ticks. That's a topic that we'll we'll stay away from. But 
you know, certainly the risk has increased. And as a result of, of first being more vulnerable and then, of course, having, um, having a great deal more exposure because there are simply more ticks and we're coming in contact more ticks, that is clearly why uh, Lyme disease is going through the roof. So, Matt, I'm sorry. Uh, I've been dominating. I, I no, no. I'll turn it over to you. I want to. I would kind of want to sidestep away from this in a related manner because, Dr. Kelly, so many of us know Lyme testing is just horrible, right? And we recently, just this week, posted a special guest blog post from Jennifer Sala, who who talked to us about now this company called Right Eye had just entered into an agreement with MIT to use this oculometer signature to detect Lyme disease at the acute level, and they're saying it has the potential to be extremely accurate by looking at your eye health. And there's so many other tests that are coming out. So, you know, what are your thoughts on these, these new tests that are being explored from both diagnosis from an acute standpoint, but also more importantly, from the people that are watching this and listening to this, many of us are wondering, do I still have active Lyme or do I still have Lyme disease? And this could help determine whether or not we truly are still infected with Lyme as we're treating it, right? So mm -hmm. what are your views? Are you optimistic for these tests, especially these eye tests, these new tests that are being explored, all this, these millions of dollars of grant money? Or do you think really it's just a super bacteria and really it's never going to be the perfect test to identify what's keeping us sick? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic in general. I just, I try to, you know, keep on that, that silver lining and the sunny side of things as much as I can. So I am, I am hopeful in the future that we're going to have better tools to help manage this. And if we have those better tools, then we'll have more understanding, then we'll have more doctors who will help treat these patients. So I, I'm 100% hopeful that these things happen. You know, unfortunately, some of this technology just takes 20 years until it really can get honed in and used in the public. And we just want it to come so much faster, right, than that. But there is, there is some research. There's new stuff coming. There's, there's people who are paying attention to this now more than ever. So I, there's some good stuff. There's some good stuff coming. But what do you think about a clinical diagnosis? Because we actually just today had somebody reach out and wanted to come on our podcast, but saying, hey, I never tested positive for Lyme disease. So is that okay, right? So I almost feel like if you don't test positive, you really doubt whether or not you can truly have it. Many doctors are starting to do more clinical diagnoses. Do you think that's a fair thing to do to give a clinical diagnosis? Or do you think that's a slippery slope to start giving out all these clinical diagnoses of chronic Lyme disease? Even in the past, I don't know if, honestly, I haven't checked their website in quite a while, but in the past, the CDC even recognized that Lyme was a clinical diagnosis and that the labs were for surveillance purposes and like it, you, you needed to make a clinical diagnosis. Um, so even, even the CDC will understand and recognize that. So I do think that there is a very, very large clinical component to this. I will say that it's a double-edged sword though, because when when you're relying solely on, on that, and if you don't have the right clinical chops, then, you know, anything that looks like a duck and quacks like a duck is a duck. And Lyme mimics everything, right? So you could potentially miss some other big thing because you think it's Lyme, and it could be Lyme driving some other big thing too, but it, that needs other different help as well. Does that make sense? It does. And I think... I think an important note on that, though, Dr. Kelly, is so many people focus on just Lyme disease, and it's never just Lyme disease. It's never just Borrelia burgdorferi. We talk about this so much on our podcast, but it's there's. I mean, we just interviewed somebody last week whose interview is going to come out in a, in, in a few weeks now forward, but she talked about having hepatitis as well, which is preventing her from being able to get proper treatment because she was so sensitive because her liver 
was essentially weak from hepatitis and she had to address that before she can tolerate the treatment and collectively by addressing the hepatitis and the Lyme disease, she got better. But the hepatitis was the missing link, it wasn't Lyme. So if we're just narrowly focused on treating Lyme disease, we could be missing out on either even other tick-borne illnesses like Babesia or other things like hepatitis and other things that we may, we may have and we may miss the board on those areas, right? So I think it is a double-edged sword and I do agree. But one of the questions, so Kellyanne Fitt asked us in our poll that we did on, on our story, what are other markers that can be used that are clues for Lyme disease, understanding the testing is so poor? One of the specific markers she asked about was if we have elevated C4A levels, is that a good indicator of Lyme disease if the two-tier testing is coming back negative? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I do use these immunological labs to help me hone in on what I think is happening and what I think the, the current driver of the illness is. And C4A and CD57 and probably TGF-beta are the three that get used the most. But none of them alone and none of them together mean you have Lyme disease. These are very generic labs that get affected by many, many things. So an elevation in, in any one of those doesn't, or a depletion, I guess, in CD57, does not mean that you have Lyme. But if you look at everything in context and you have the right history and you have the right symptoms and you have the right, you know, on all the, everything kind of blends together plus those labs there, it, it all creates a story. So you can't take them out of context, but you can use some of those tools. And especially when you don't have access to like IgenX or Vibrant or other better Lyme tests, if you only have LabCorp or Quest, which are kind of crummy when it comes to the Western blot but you're still concerned, but you have the other markers and the history and things too, you can put together a very convincing tick-borne illness case with those labs. What, what do you see as the most common other things that people should look for with Lyme disease? We talked about, you know, that was, I think, a un somewhat unique case or not as common with the hepatitis, but there are a lot of other things that go along with Lyme that maybe can be addressed separately or that are a consequence of Lyme, a downstream effect like MCAS or chronic, you know, SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, or POTS, things like that. Is it worthwhile to test for those things? Is it worthwhile to spend the money on that? Or is it, is it as we start to treat and heal these chronic infections and viruses, et cetera, that those things will subside on their own? You know, what, what is your view on mm -hmm. everybody watching? How far should we go? How far is too much is our testing for all these things that so many of us have along with Lyme disease? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of patients come to me, been sick for a long time. They've already been tested for a lot of these things already. Um, they've done the tilt table study and, and that torture device and other things as well, you know, with these things. I think there's importance to a fair amount of it. So I think it's important to make sure that as a Lyme doc, my blinders are never up. I'm always taking my blinders down. I'm always looking at what else is happening because there may be something going on that needs other specialists that needs another person in there to help me. So I had a patient recently, um, her coagulation markers were just bonkers. And I was worried that she was going to clot and bleed at the same time. And I said, you need a hematologist. I need you to have a specialist in here to help me manage all of this because we need to kind of pull in some extra troops. Um, but you, oh, so to kind of go back to your question too, a lot of the other stuff, if, especially if it's secondary to the infections, the MCAS, SIRS, 
um, pots. Like it will get better when you treat the infections. But it's also safe to say sometimes when I'm trying to treat the infections and I can't get the infections underway, that it may be the MCAS that is holding us back or the mold that's holding us back. So you have to constantly be able to look and juggle all those different things and know that you got to go in whatever order that person's body wants you to go in to, to address everything and to, to constantly look for those things. So sometimes you got to spend the money. Sometimes you got to go get the tests. Um, because they're, they can be very, very important to help you get to the bottom of it and help you heal. So, so Dr. Kelly, you talk about sometimes needing to build out your team. And recently, we had the pleasure of interviewing a new member of your team, Dr. D.T. Agarwal. And uh, I actually read her blog on uh, prehabilitation before interviewing her. And we had a lengthy conversation of, about prehabilitation. We really never had sort of language for this preparatory phase of going through the healing process. So can you talk to us about your thoughts on prehabilitation and how important it is to go through that process before you go through this sort of kill phase of, um, mm -hmm. of treating? Yeah, I'm so glad you guys met her. She's such a great addition to our team. I'm so excited to have her um, and, and our patients are excited to have her. She's wonderful. I, I, it fits so well, this prehabilitation fits so well into Lyme. I have a lot of patients who are sensitive to everything. You know, you open a bottle of biocidin and they can kind of walk into the room and smell it. And that's about the dose that they can handle, right, before they hurt to have a, have a reaction to it. So there's a fair amount of people that you really have to prep the system first. You know, they're, you have to deal with their SIBO. You've got to deal with their gut. You've got, to, you've got to get the mold cleared out of their system. And there's some patients that they're so sick, I have to rebuild their cells. You know, I have to give them a lot of phosphatidylcholine and things to just make their cells stronger so that they can tolerate things. So it's very common practice for us to, before I even get into full-blown attack mode, that there's a lot of preparation that we have to do to get you ready so you can handle attack mode and, and right. survive it. Yeah. And, and of course, there's, there's also a lot of emotional preparation and there's drainage pathways and there's just so many different pieces to this. And, and, and I have to tell you, we, we really enjoyed the conversation that we had with her about the prehabilitation because it really does sort of give us a, a, a way of describing this, this process of getting yourself ready for what is a really rigorous, um, you know, couple of year process when you're going through this, uh, this battle with chronic Lyme disease. So I do want to jump in because I have some questions on this about, you know, this whole open our drainage pathways. We had so many Lyme hacks talk to us about opening our drainage pathways. And some of, some of our Lyme hack participants gave us really great advice. But we get all the time from people in DMs and private messages. What does that really mean, Dr. Kelly, right? So we, we always hear before you really aggressively treat Lyme or before you treat, you should open up your drainage pathways to optimize your body's ability to kill off the various pathogens and also eliminate the die off and these toxins as a result of that. But what specific tools do you use with your clients to help A, open up your drainage pathways and B, ensure your body's primed to start killing all the various pathogens that are going on in your body? And I mm -hmm. you know that means, and how do you get rid of them, right? Is it, is it, you know, is it you, you pee, you poop, you sweat, you detox? What does that really mean? Can you give some more details? Yeah. We hear it a lot at a high level, but I, I think a lot of people listening want to know what are specific supplements? What are specific things we can do to prime our bodies to allow us to better heal as we're treating? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could give you an hour long lecture on this. Um, so our bodies are designed to detox. They, they are designed to get rid of what we don't need, right? So 
our liver is the main organ that helps in that process, but all of our cells can detox. And we also get rid of toxins through um, our sweat and our breath and, um, you know, our, our pee and our poop and all that kind of fun stuff. We, we got to get everything out of our system. But what happens is there's, it's a bottleneck effect. We can only do so much, right? And some of us have genetic issues. Some of us have more exposures. Just some of us are more overloaded. So we can't detox as well as we want to or should for multiple different reasons. So there's a big bottleneck. And if you can't detox, if you can't get this stuff out of you, it all then collects and it just continues to, to wreak havoc on your system, all these toxins do. Um, and our body tries to sequester them in fat cells and do all of these things, but they can still cause more and more problems if you can't get them out. And when you start to kill off infections, you add all of their toxins from their innards into this toxic soup, and that just adds to all of your symptoms and makes everything worse. So that's why detoxing is so important for herxing, but also if, you, if we can start to broaden that, open up that bottleneck and create more space for those toxins to flow out of you, you're gonna tolerate all of your treatments better because you have an exit plan for everything. So um, for, for detox, there's gonna three big things I think about. One is you know, avoiding and removing the exposure. So whether that's mold or um, junk food or whatever, you know, trying to kind of cut back on that exposure. And that includes changing your beauty products and your cleaning products and your water and all the things to try to kind of cut down and reduce your exposure to the toxins. Two is filter them through, help that liver, help your cells filter through those. So um, I use a lot of glutathione. So I use L-glutathione and S-acetylglutathione from orthoenzymogen a lot. Um, we use a lot of liver, different liver support. So things that have milk thistle, um, artichoke, dandelion, um, methionine. There's so, um, specific ones that I will use with people is liver nutrients by seeking health, um, lipotropics detox by Zymogen, DIM detox. I think that's by pure, um, MedCat, Xenoprotects, those are both by Zymogen. So I use a handful of different ones, just kind of depending on specifics here on the patient. Um, make sure you're staying hydrated. That will help filter through. Make sure that you are pooping. That's another way to make sure you are getting, you know, you know, Dr. Dr. Kine, sorry to interrupt you, but how? Yep. So many people reach out to us privately. There's so many sensitive topics in the wine world. I think one of yep. them is so many people start treating or doing things like binders and they get constipated, right? Yeah. And they're going, I feel horrible. I feel so sick. I have to stop. I have to stop everything I'm doing. I can't go to the bathroom. What are some tools to help people that are getting constipated from treatment or detoxing tools that are just not allowing them to really go to the bathroom, right? What are some recommendations yeah. you have for those people that are afraid to ask that question publicly? Yeah, I'm all about poop. I talk about poop all day long, so I have no qualms talking about it. Um, you know, the flip side too, sometimes binders actually make you poop more. So it's, it's not all binders are going to actually cause constipation. It, it, you never know until you start taking it with what you're going to get. So sometimes if you're constipated, taking the binders actually helps. But um, I will use products like Colonex by Zymogen that has trifala, aloe, and magnesium citrate in it. 
I also will just use straight magnesium citrate and you can use pretty high doses up to a thousand milligrams of that to help you have bowel movements. Um, sometimes we'll have to do things like coffee enemas or just col colonics or, or just regular even water enemas to actually just manually physically get things out. Um, and some people are just need that oomph with things because their transit time is slow because their, their nervous system is bogged down and from all these things. Um, sometimes I even use some medications like Linzess or True Lance, which is a peptide, um, which stay in the gut, but can help that gut move along. So sometimes you have to kind of go that route as well, um, to get it moving. Gotta get it moving. So Dr. Kelly, one of the things that uh, I recently tried as a, uh, as a result of a prompt from my friend, Matt is Corella as, uh, as <laughs> Corella. A Corella, sorry, Matt. Well, I, I mean, I've had such a bad experience with it. I can't. I didn't even want to pronounce it. And um, and I tried it three different times. The three different times it gave me the runs. So why would why would a binder like that give someone the runs um, when you take it? Um... What is wrong with Rich? Why can't he take one Chlorella and not be able to leave the bathroom for an entire day? And yeah. I can take thirty capsules and be okay, right? And, yeah. and that's yeah. in the weird case. Rich doesn't have Lyme disease. So what's wrong with Rich in that regard? What should he be looking at if he's having that response? <laughs> Well, that's what I was saying. Sometimes the binders actually help the, the bowels move more because it's kind of giving that extra um, oomph. You know, chlorella, though, is a little tricky because it is um, an algae and it's actually a FODMAP. And so sometimes people with SIBO and other issues have trouble with chlorella from that standpoint. So it may actually be that you have more of like an aller allergy type of reaction to it. And that's why it's like your body's flushing it out. That's one, that's one possibility. I would tell him to be a candida, really bad candida, and that's why. Could that be true or not really? It, I mean, maybe, but... Not that, so much. It's okay. You can tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, an, another, another question is, and we have Kelsey on. One of the things that have been really groundbreaking for people that have been trying various treatment modalities for years is SOT. And Kelsey Watkins, who's on she had some great success with it. And a lot of people have had great success with it. So what are your views on SOT? Do you think it's going to become more commonplace in the Lyme community? And, you know, yeah. how many people do you think can actually benefit from that therapy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do, actually. So um, I actually am right now in the process of my training in SOT, actually. Um, I was supposed to do it a long time ago, but then their company reorged and I got lost in the shuffle. And so now I'm back into the mix. Um, it's one of those things. So SOT, just like the quick rundown for people who don't know what it is. It actually started as a cancer therapy, but it's um, this oligonucleotide nonsense therapy that, or antisense that kind of injects itself into the bacterial genome and kills it essentially. Um, and they can make it specifically for the infections that you have. And they're only going to hurt your infection the infected cell, not your, not your safe, healthy human cells. So it's very, very interested, very, very targeted treatment. Um, and I'm fascinated by it and I'm really excited about it. I have only had a handful of patients that have gone through it, but, it, and it's one of those things where some people, it really turned them around and other people didn't do anything. So I think it's just like every other treatment out there. There are some people who are going to respond to it better than others. Um, and, I'm not sure if we have a good way of telling who's going to respond well or not 
at this point. I don't know if we know that information. I don't know enough about it quite yet. So I'm not an expert. So ask me again in a year. Um, we'll ask you next Lyme Awareness Month, next May, one year from today. Sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> please do. I'm, I'm actually, I'm really excited about it. I think it's really, really interesting, fascinating stuff. Dr. Kelly, I have a, another uh, prehab question. That is uh, parasites. What role do you think parasites play in a healing journey? And, um, and how long do you think parasites should be the focus of, um, of a treatment journey? I think parasites probably play a bigger role than anyone wants to admit. I think parasites get a bad rap because everyone, you know, the first response most people say when I say, I think you have parasites is, Ooh, I'm not dirty. I'm like, no, you're not dirty. You're human. Like these things are around. We test our dogs really easily. We test our dogs for these things, right? If our horse has a slightly elevated eosinophil, we treat them for worms. Like, what makes us think we don't have these things too? Like just by living, right? These things are here. They're in, it's fine. It's a part of our ecosystem. It's great. It's wonderful. Um, some of them. Not so much. <laughs> sarcasm. I need to learn to like, make you know that I, that was my sarcasm. Um, so I actually think for a handful of people who are kind of stuck in their journey, it could really very well be a parasite issue. You're not actually dealing with the parasite. So, um, it's not necessarily always one of the first things I go to. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it, it evolves and it morphs and you're like, Oh, that's the issue. Um, and you need to deal with that before you can deal with anything else really to kind of get to the bottom of it. But I, I think it's a part of the puzzle. I think it's one piece. And so if it's there, you have to address it and, and not forget to look for it. And you have to have a low clinical threshold for it because the testing for it stuff stinks. Sorry as well <laughs> you can say sucks it's okay, okay. so what, <laughs> what 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 types of tools do you use for treating parasites and when yeah. when do you know that that's come to an end of the treatment cycle mm -hmm. when you no longer have massive reactions to the treatment that's a pretty good sign that you're through it or if you go get colonics and your colonics person tells you they're no longer seeing stuff in your poop those are good signs. Um, no, unfortunately, there's not because the testing for it, Rich, is just so horrible that it can be, it's not really easy to tell necessarily. But I do, I use herbs and things, but I also use medication. I have kind of my, my little go-to medication, um, like treatment plan, which is a, a six-week protocol um, that sometimes I have to repeat multiple times, kind of depending on how people respond to it. Um, and what's in that treatment plan, Dr. Kelly? You said you have, you have like a, is it a pharmaceutical treatment plan or what's it, what, what do you use for that? It is. It is. So I do a day of Biltricide and then I do two weeks of Ivermectin and Pyrantel, which is also called Reese's Pimworm. It's over the counter. And then two weeks of Albendazole and then two weeks of Alenia. So a lot of people have been telling us, you know, one person in particular uh, it, that we met in a, in a Lyme group, she told us that she's been treating parasites for, I think it was like rich three, four, five, some, many, many years, right? So do you think that that's a really stubborn case of parasites? Or do you think in that case, maybe they're not using the right combination or the right treatment to really get to the root cause? Because how can you, you know, if your body keeps getting rid of these parasites, when, when do you make a decision to say, okay, I need to try something else, right? And, and what mm -hmm. options are there? Because we hear about Para-1 from CellCore, Para-2, they have the whole parasite protocol, you have your protocol. So 
it almost sounds like if you, you're going on too long and you're not seeing results, you may want to try something else to address the parasite mm -hmm. and not stick with the protocol for too long. Is that accurate? I mean, yeah. you know, how long is too long that's, with one particular I treatment, mean, you know? That's true for everything, though, um, because, again, this, you have to have such a high clinical threshold because the testing is just not adequate. So for me, I, I kind of think of things sometimes in three-month chunks, and if I'm not seeing the results that I want in those three months, whether good, bad, or otherwise, like if I'm not seeing what I want to see, then I, you have to switch to something else. And if I'm not getting the results clinically, then I have to go back to the drawing board and say, what am I missing? What is the other thing here? Is it just that the mast cells are too out of control? Or, you know, where, what am I missing? How do I deal with this? Because you can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect to magically get better um, if you're not seeing results. Like, you have to see something. Usually something will move around in there. When you say don't see results, if somebody plateaus, is that the same mm -hmm. as not seeing results anymore? Meaning mm -hmm. if you don't, pla if you plateau for three months or more, then you got to make a change, basically. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes I'm at, sometimes people need to just plateau for a little bit and be okay you know what i mean because we just get so pill overloaded and we get herx overloaded and um and and that we have to take a little bit of a break sometimes so sometimes those plateaus are a good time to just to rest for a minute um, and almost enjoy the progress <laughs> exactly yeah but yeah exactly if you're plateau though we got to keep going something else. Dr. Kelly, what are your thoughts about journaling? There's been a lot of uh, discussion uh, in and actually on our line packs about journaling and what's the value to that um, first for the patient but then also for the clinician that they're working with so they can determine when it's time to pivot? Yeah. Well, I think every everybody processes things differently and this these chronic tick-borne infections are such a mind game in a lot of levels that you have to work through that in, in whatever way makes sense to you. So if getting those thoughts out of your head and onto paper help you, then absolutely you should do that. Um, if you prefer meditation, then you should do that. But there's ways to, to process and think through these things that everybody is different. So some people need to journal and, want, and, and that's very helpful. Other people, you put a piece of paper in front of them and it's just one more stress in their life and like they can't add anything else right yeah um but it, you what can be very helpful from a from as far as like tracking can be very helpful from my standpoint because i can go back in your history then you started this on this day this on this day and then on this day you had a side effect and that helps me kind of figure out um what happened um and and where what our next best steps may be um based on that but that's also something I don't want people to linger on if you're going to keep track of your symptoms and when you take things like write it down and let it go do not obsess about every little detail so one of the things that I thought would be helpful from the standpoint of just tracking uh, progress is because progress is often subtle you don't know how far along you've come and I think it helps to build belief that you're having success and you're going to continue to have success if you're, if you're able to look back and see where you've been. So what are your thoughts about that, the impact that, you know, sort of developing belief and seeing progress have on future progress? Yeah. Oh, such a great point. The way I will describe it is, you know, when you see a baby every single day, you don't realize how big they're getting. But when you see a baby once a month, they like look huge and like a completely different person, right? So when you are in the midst of this, you, it's hard to tell, especially with fatigue. Um, so going back and kind of looking at the numbers, um, 
it can be very helpful if, if you kind of rank things so that you can see where you've come. Um, and I always try to kind of parcel out some of these questions too, because let's take fatigue, for example. When you are building up your stamina and you're starting to build your energy, chances are you're going to be just as tired at the end of the day every day as you were before. But when you look back, you'll notice that you were doing more. You were accomplishing more. You weren't napping as often. You know, you like, oh my gosh, that's right. I'm still as tired, but I could walk to the store today and I never could have done that three months ago. You know, things like that that are hard when you're in the midst of it to recognize. But that's a victory. That's a small victory. Let's celebrate it and, and keep building from that. So Claire Dalton, Rich, I just want to give her a shout out. Our line hack today from Claire Dalton talked about writing down your small wins, your small victories, and then looking back when you're having a bad time to realize how far you've come, right? And for me, emotionally, it's been very helpful. And I, I use Christina Consavola's Wayne Camino's journal, um, Begin Within Today. And I think the most important part, as you noted, Dr. Kelly, is to not to let it go after you write it down, right? Especially when it's a bad day. But when it's a good day, write down those good things that are happening and the progress you've made. So when I'm having a bad day, I think back and I can look back in the journal and say, wow, I used to be this bad. And even on a, my worst day today, I'm not that bad. And I think that really helps you in the, in the, in the bad moments, right? So 100%. I mean, on the emotional side of it, I mean, what are your thoughts on, you know, in addition to addressing the physical health, obviously the emotional health is important, but what's always fascinated Rich and I is this neural retraining, right? So you have DNRS, you have Gupta, you have Vital Side, with who's actually from, from Lindsay Mitchell, who is a former chronic Lyme patient. Do you think there's value in those programs? Because there's so many things we can try, Dr. Kelly. We have to try to prioritize our energy and our mm -hmm. money to focus on things that are more likely to actually help us, right? So do you think mm -hmm. there's benefit for a large portion of us in the Lyme community to try these brain retraining programs? And if so, which ones do you find to be the most helpful? Yeah. I do. I talk about neuroplasticity and limbic system repair with virtually every single patient. Maybe not on the first visit necessarily, but we talk about it because I do think it's a huge part of this healing process. Because I mentioned it's a mind game, right? A lot of this is a mind game. And a lot of this is the exact same PTSD loop that you've got going in your system akin to other PTSD. And it's that same that same loop that has to be dealt with and reversed and retrained. So I think it's really important. Um, I think some people are not in a place where they can do these big programs where you're supposed to devote an hour a day every day. People don't have that time and they don't have that concentration. They don't have that energy. So I've kind of helped people find some other um, more passive ways to start that process. Things like binaural beats where you listen to different sounds and different ears and that helps to your reset your brain waves to less anxious and, and more focused, et cetera. Um, you know, maybe a hypnosis or a, we do neural feedback at our office. That's very passive things that, you know, okay, I can do that. I, I can do something like that for, for 10 minutes where I don't have to think or do that. And you start to build upon that and then you can kind of get to some other apps and then you can get to the programs. Um, because I do think these programs are huge and helpful, but I also don't want people to get discouraged because they try it too soon and they're not ready to take on that, you know, that time commitment and that money commitment and everything else. Dr. Kelly, what are your thoughts on, um, on herbal tools uh, that will help calm down the HPA axis and, um, and help the physiological element of that fight or flight? Mm. Though there's some really cool adaptogenic herbs out there and it kind of depends too if you are perpetually up in the fight or flight 
um, wired but tired or if you're kind of, now you're kind of down into the exhausted level of things. Um, but ashwagandha is a great herb that can help either one of those. Um, Lithero, licorice, um, rhodiola, um, magnolia. Um, yeah, so, so some specific ones that I will use. Um, I use cortisol by Zymogen to help bring down and calm down that, that wire, but tired or fight or flight sensation. Um, and then they have one too called Adrenal Live, which is more uplifting um, for the, the really fatigued a aspect of that. But there's really great herbs out there. And I do think that they help a lot with that overburdened system. Yeah. So, so one of the things that fascinates us is well, I guess first, Dr. Kelly, if you can clarify, I think we know this, but I just want people that are listening to know we're not saying it's all in their head because how many of us, yes. I mean, look, I have Katie DePaul's yeah. book in front of me. At least you look good, right? And, you know, she's, she, she was told by so many doctors, you look great. You can't be sick. So we're told by so mm -hmm. many people that's in our head. And then when we yeah. hear, oh, it's in your brain, you need, you need to do brain retraining. What do you mean? It's not in my head. I have Lyme disease. I have Babesia. I have Bartonella, right? So I, I, if we can just clarify first that we're saying these are actual brain pathways. These are our brain patterns that are stuck from being sick that we need to break, right? If you can expand upon exactly. that a little bit. And, yes. and the second part of my question is, though, we've heard a lot about these, ex I'll call them experimental ways to break that PTSD brain loop, like ketamine, like combo, right? And psychedelics. What are your thoughts on those tools to shortcut or almost jumpstart your body's ability to get out of that PTSD loop? and allow your body to start to heal and overcome this really horrible illness that they have. Yeah. I think that was one of my first hiccups and roadblocks with, with this neuroplasticity and limbic system repair is trying to explain it to people and make sure I'm saying those words exactly. I am not saying you are making this up. I know you are not. This is physiological. This is real. This is not make-believe, right? Um, I just want people to know to feel empowered that they can start to control some of those subconscious pathways that have been created through this process. And you can kind of take the reins back a little bit to help get it moved back into um, a different direction and really physically break down some of those proteins and pathways and build new ones in your brain, which is pretty cool that we can do that kind of stuff just with our, our thoughts. Um, but it takes more than that. It, it, you know, mind over matter and, and things are very, very important, but it's a part of the whole treatment plan. Correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, but thank you for bringing that up because I think that's an important aspect um, and, and point to make. So I do not know enough about plant medicine to really give you any sort of educated um, response to them. I can tell you that I have met several people who... It, these these plant medications have changed their life for the good and really helped them get to a better place in their healing journey. And I think if it's done in a safe manner with people who are trained, with people who know what they're doing, um, then they could be something very, very beneficial. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a lot of research and study going on with these things right now. So they're, they're very, very interesting. And um, I think they have a place. You talked about Dr. cellular health. Sorry, Rich, you can jump in. No, no, so uh, Dr. Kelly, one of the things that Matt and I have been fascinated about um, uh, is the diversity in populations, meaning, unfortunately, we see children um, having a much different path to healing than we see adults. And, and, and unfortunately, we've, we've seen very few children 
get through the, the chronic Lyme disease journey. Uh, but the other d element of diversity is the gender diversity, where there seems to be a substantially larger number of women who are suffering from chronic Lyme disease than men. So can you talk to us first about the age issues and, and childhood onset versus adult onset and what your experience has been in, in those two diff different populations? And then, of course, the gender divide. So I actually think that kids are pretty darn resilient. And I have a fair amount of kids who do really wonderful um, and they tolerate treatment really well and can really get through things much better and faster and cleaner than an adult. Um, I think some of that's because they don't have 40 years of life behind them, you know, and all that extra baggage and all those extra toxins, et cetera, in their system. So they, um, they can do really, really well um, in some ways much easier um, but not always, right? You know, these things are very complicated and you've got to be careful with, with kiddos because the dosing is different and their bodies are different and they can't fully express what their symptoms are. So it makes it a little harder to kind of, kind of get in there and guess, but, um, there, I've seen some just amazing turnaround in kiddos. Um, and I love them. They're wonderful. They're so cute. Um, I, I'm not sure if women are actually afflicted with Lyme more or if women just seek medical help more. Um, that is a, probably a very sexist thing to say. Um, but my entire health career, I've had more women coming to me as an integrative doc. Um, just knowing their bodies more and not being they're, they're less likely to just kind of say, oh, well, I must be getting older. Um, it, I don't know. Like, so I'm not sure if it's actually that it's afflicting women more or not, um, or if it's just afflicting women differently. So they're more attuned to it in a different way. I, you know, I, I don't know. That's well, let me challenge you on that a little bit, because okay. I, I just think that the, the level of illness is so high but I don't know how someone could not get treatment, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I've shared with folks on our podcast, when Matt walked into my office and we first started working together on his journey, he was so sick, he could not have sucked it up. He could have not avoided treatment. He had to get treatment. And that's sort of where certainly the 250 or so folks that we've interviewed on our podcast have been. And we've just sort of seen a greater presentation of women and men and I don't think it's just because they're seeking treatment at a greater rate, because I just think you're so sick, you have to get treatment with this. So give me your thoughts on, 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 on whether or not it, it is possible that women are being afflicted differently than men. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's more that women tend to have more autoimmune disease as well. You know, that just, we tend to have a higher rate of that. And so Lyme, you know, might affect us a little different and so we just notice it more or differently. And I don't, honestly, I don't know, Rich, I'm making all this stuff up. I, I can yeah, no, tell you, I don't I, know why. I, you know, and I think <laughs> when we're walking down these paths, everyone, everyone is uncomfortable, but you know, we, we, we had to make our peace with the reality in COVID that the male immune system simply wasn't as good at managing, managing COVID than the female immune system. It's just real. The numbers are there. We can, we, you know, we, I, I, don't, I don't think we're debating about that anymore. And because we've sort of become comfortable with that type of, of, of disparity in the immune response to a particular microbe, 
perhaps you know we can we can do the same thing in the Lyme community, and perhaps we you know we need to be more sensitive to you know to those differences when both diagnosing Lyme and treating Lyme. Mm -hmm. You make some really, really good points. And I apologize for making such a sexist statement. Um, and I certainly don't want to disparage males from going and getting help at all. Um, and yeah, I think maybe maybe it's that autoimmune pathway type of issue that just makes it makes it different for us. Or maybe it's maybe it's that, you know, the cytokine storm is less likely to come in COVID, which is why you know, you know, women have to be able to manage foreign bodies if you're going to ultimately have a child, right? If you right. manage a yeah. house, so the, mm -hmm. so, you, so the cytokine storm is going to be different, and maybe that's maybe that's something that gives men an advantage in the um, you know in the Lyme uh, mm -hmm. arena. Again, I don't know. I'm I'm mm -hmm. making it up as well, but I, I'm just wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, although to be fair, I do think there are a lot of people walking around with this stuff who are more on the mild spectrum and chalk it up to just getting older when it's not that at all you know yeah he said oh, look there are a lot of people that are making excuses for their own symptoms there are a lot of people who have doctors uh you know maybe gaslighting maybe seeing you know seeing uh you know a, a, another you know another disease um, I, I think there are a lot of different reasons why you have people who are either mildly affected or moderately affected, and they're finding ways of rationalizing rather than seeking care, for sure. But you know, uh, you know, from the standpoint of you know the, the the chronic level of the illness, I just think that you know when you're that sick, you you're you know, and you're that disabled, and you know, again, I'll use Matt as 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 my touch point. This guy was so sick. He couldn't communicate with me what was wrong with him and why he was coming to see a lawyer. That's how sick he was. So I, I just don't think, um, I don't think that the treatment is is avoidable. Matt, I, I certainly love your. But, the, but let me counter that, Rich, because we've had so many people in the podcast tell us they feel like the lucky ones. I mean, look, we just interviewed UFC champion who's a, a world record record setting UFC fighter who had Lyme disease, and it started off so mild, and he still to this day says I had it easy compared to others. And it did progress where it debilitated and where he couldn't walk down the stairs, he couldn't play with his children. But he goes, I had, it, I had it easy, right? So I think there are people, to Dr. Kelly's point, that aren't getting as severe as I did for a variety of reasons. And maybe they're walking around not even knowing they have it or just sort of tolerating it, right? Mm -hmm. But I do want to explore this whole gender topic more because one of the things Rich and I just simply can't do, Dr. Kelly, is explore things like endometriosis and Lyme disease, right? There is, we've noticed from interviewing now almost 280 people we've interviewed on our podcast, and we've talked to thousands of people that are afflicted with Lyme disease, there seems to be a really high correlation of people with chronic Lyme disease that are also suffering from severe endometriosis. So what are your views? Have you seen that in your practice as well? And what are some tools or tips or tricks you can recommend to the females mm -hmm. that are watching this and listening to this to help them alleviate their endo symptoms while attacking Lyme disease as well? Yeah, that's, that's a really, really great point as well, because... I don't know if endometriosis necessarily, but even just period flares of their symptoms. Very, very, very common in women to flare every single month. And it can be so much so that it's the week before, the week of, the week after. You know, so they get one good month or one good week. Um, and good being relative, right? Not necessarily great, but you know, compared to the other weeks. So that is an extremely common part of this. And the, the fluctuations and the different hormones that women are bathed in absolutely affect all of these symptoms. 
And so honestly, one of the best things I've ever seen to help balance hormones is acupuncture. So I often encourage um, and referrals to good acupuncturists to help with the hormone balance. There are several herbs that I will use as well. I try to avoid birth control pills um, because they seem to make candida worse, in my opinion. Um, So I try to avoid that. So I'm using things more like chase to berry, um, even black cohosh, uh, DIM, uh, things to help balance the estrogen progesterone um, interplay. But I do use hormones um, in women, some bioidentical hormones to help with that balance. Um, sometimes I have to use them in men too, like give some testosterone um, to, to help with the symptoms too. Um, but the men don't seem to have the exact same fluctuations as women do on a monthly basis. And so it just, and that part of it too, is that our hormones are greatly affected by toxins. And we've talked before about kind of this toxic stew that we brew in with these chronic infections. And so that's just going to throw off all of our hormones. And when our body's under stress, it's going to kind of steal all of those hormones and send them to our adrenals and our cortisol production. And so our sex hormones get, you know, the short end of this, of the stick and they, so everything just get really, really thrown off in our endocrine system from, from these infections. So many follow-up questions on that, Dr. Kelly. One of the things we heard and we want to get your opinion on is when women are on birth control, that the Lyme bacteria and other virus bacteria pathogens and even parasites will actually hide out in the reproductive system. And if you don't have a regular period because of birth control, it's actually a place for the pathogens to hide and get away from, you know, from your immune system and from, from antibiotic therapy and drug therapy and herbal therapy. Is that true? Have you seen that where women on birth control are having a harder time addressing their illness and they should go off the birth control because pathogens are hiding in, in, in the reproductive system? Um, I have not seen any literature or, or data to, to back that up necessarily, but uh, I do find, especially like on a yeast standpoint and other issues with those, the birth control pills without that, even though it's hard to have that natural rhythm, like if you really start to alter it too much, it, it really can affect you negatively. So sometimes it is worthwhile to get off. Now on the flip side, sometimes these hormone swings are so much and people feel so miserable and they can't like they are taking narcotics because their pain is so bad that these hormones can be a lifesaver. So I'm not going to say never to anything. Right. But generally speaking, I I don't think that the birth control pills are, are doing all of the good that they say they are. We have a question from Helga. She's at Oh My Helga on Instagram and she wanted to know, can Lyme disease cause infertility in women? I have not seen that necessarily. Now, um, you know, I certainly do have some Lyme moms who have trouble with fertility, but I have a lot of Lyme moms. I, I just, we, I think we just had two, we've had two babies born this year from in our patient population. Um, well, like in the last month, actually. Um, so we, we definitely see a lot of pregnancies, but fertility is so loaded and it's, there's a lot of different things that will affect it. And absolutely these tick-borne infections can play a role in that. And so it is, and you can transmit these infections to the baby. So I'm 
always encouraging my moms to get the Lyme or bark or whatever under control first before they start the process of trying to get pregnant. What, what are your thoughts, Dr. Kelly, on the sexual transmission of Lyme disease? Hmm. There's just not enough data. It's possible. You know, syphilis is Lyme's dumb cousin, and that is a sexually transmitted infection. Um, there's something very special about the tick bite in the saliva of the tick that really affects the immune system that I think kind of puts all of these infections into warp speed, if you will. So, you know, the experts that I've talked to about it are all very split 50-50. So maybe. So do you think viral load or bacterial load plays a role in the process of sexual transmission? Because I, I agree with you. I think there's something special about the tech spit, but also about the load, because there does seem to be an attachment period that is required before the acute illness will set in. And my guess is, and again, I, since we're, we're spitballing a lot here tonight, and I appreciate you being brave enough to do that with us, um, do you, do you think perhaps one of the reasons why, why it's less likely that sexual transmission is a threat is because the load of the, the bacterial load would be low either way? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. I agree. So Dr. Kelly, can we talk about floxing? Because this, has been, this, this topic has been brought up so much in the last few weeks for us, right? And I think the biggest concern people have about this is so many of us in the Lyme community have been on so many antibiotics in our lifetime, right? Especially for Lyme. And we know certain antibiotics can cause this floxing, which is essentially a separate condition that causes muscle and tendon problems and damage because of the antibiotic. There's a black box label on these antibiotics, like Levaquin, for example. And then we have these issues and we think maybe it's Lyme disease, but there is a lot of overlap in those symptomology. So do you see that in your patients? Do you think it's not as big of a deal as I think it is? And if so, how do you, how do you deal with floxing when it's a, separate condition, I believe, than Lyme disease, right? It is, yeah. It's, um, it's caused by um, flux, floxacillin, um, like ciprofloxacillin, Leviquin, like you talked about. These medications um, can actually, you can actually get like Achilles tendon tears from this medicine, which is pretty insane that a medicine can do that. Um, so targeted, right? You know, something that you take orally. Um, and there are people and actually just, we just got a phone call from a patient this week with it. Um, it's a, it's a toxin issue. It's an immune issue. It's this big, huge reaction to a medicine. And I think you have to unpack it and kind of figure out all the other things that are there. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I very rarely, if ever use those medications, because why bother even, the, you know, the possibility of throwing that on the fire. Dr. Kelly, we, another one of the things that Matt and I have been fascinated by is this concept of retracing, where folks um, are sort of revisiting symptoms that they seem to have resolved later on in their, uh, in their treatment journey. Have you seen retracing as a part of the uh, treatment journeys that your patients have been on? And how do you distinguish um, a reinfection or, or a revisiting of a symptom versus this retracing as an element of healing. Mm, yeah, it's actually a very um, homeopathic mentality um, and philosophy of, of illness is, you know, you kind of, you start with A and you go all the way to Z and then you come all the way back through the letters back to A and, and your healing journey. So going back to some of the very original symptoms that you developed can be a very good sign 
that you're getting back to bedrock and, and back to, to that. And so you're close to, to the healing process. And I think that does happen for some people. Um, not everybody, you know, some people just go from A to Z. Um, so everybody's body is very, very different, but, um, I think part of that though, for me, when I see that kind of retracing from A to Z back to A, um, typically everything else is cleared up. You know, they started with 500 symptoms, if you will, they're, you know, gone through this journey. Now they're back, to, now they're down to like one or five of them, but they're very original symptoms that have kind of come back or come back to light. That's that retracing kind of thing in my world. Um, as far as how can you tell when you get a new infection, that's tricky. A lot of that's historical and that doesn't necessarily have to be the original symptoms. It could be brand new infection or symptoms or, you know, some acute change that happens, but a lot of it comes from, from history and trying to di dive into that clinically and figure that out. It's tricky because the blood work doesn't tell you. Dr. Kelly, I want to ask you about some things that prevent people from getting over Lyme disease. Cause we've heard so many things like mold, parasites, et cetera. What are some common things you're seeing in your patients that are preventing them from actually responding to Lyme treatment, right? Because so many people that reach out to us say, I've been treating with so many different modalities, including disulfiram, double dapsone, I did herbal therapies, I did Buner, and I'm just not getting better. What could be the problem? So we talked about other things that are off to the side, like hepatitis, which is a little more rare, other things like MCAS and POTS, right? That could be more downstream stuff. But what are things that could be a chronic exposure or other things that need to be looked at first to be addressed in the body before going back and treating Lyme so we can actually have a better reaction or mm -hmm. response to the Lyme treatment. Yeah, so some of the big ones we've, we've touched on most of them already. So parasites, um, SIRS or mold, um, even yeast or SIBO gut issues too can sometimes really be, be the holdout. Um, so gut issues can prevent you from responding well to Lyme treatment? Right, because your most of your immune system is in your gut. So if your gut is not working properly, your immune system is not working properly. Um, and, and I think that's one other point. That's kind of the next thing that I want to say was the immune system and healing and repairing the immune system is arguably what I think is the most important thing that needs to be done in these cases. And it's usually the hardest part is to get that immune system back into balance because Lyme literally disrupts your immune system on purpose so that it can live fine and dandy in your system and, you know, everything else is going haywire. So often, you know, with people who either can't get better or they can't get off of the medicine, you know, they can only survive on the medicine or the herbs. And every time they try to stop it, they, they can't tolerate it. It's because their immune system is not rebalanced and you have to rebalance that immune system with medications, with IVs, with peptides, with, with neurolimbic repair, with diet and all of the things. But, that if that is not being addressed, then it's going to be really, really hard for you to like really get better and stay better. Um, and a big part of that's the gut and getting the gut in working order. So sometimes it's just, you got to stop the Lyme treatment and fix the SIBO. So Matt, I'm going to, I'm going to have to issue the, the, the time is almost up, Matt. This is going to be Matt's final question because Dr. <laughs> Kelly, Matt would keep you on night and you've been really generous with uh spending well over an hour with us now so matt this will be your I, final question for the i have a really Dr. important question Casey i want to ask so dr kelly rich is right i'd keep you here all night if uh, if uh, both of you let me i know that that's uh, that's super unfair 
So you talk about the immune system. You know, we love Dr. Rolls, as you know, Dr. Kelly. And again, we have this book, Unlocking Lyme, here, which all, is all about the immune system and, and herbs to help modulate the immune system and strengthen your body. But Dr. Rolls is coming out with his next book in June, which is all about cellular health. And you touched on that earlier, right? So he's really been doing a ton of research on cellular health and cellular congestion and the role your cells play in healing and detoxing, et cetera. So can you give us a little more meat on the bone with that? Meaning what roles do your cells really play in allowing you to heal from Lyme disease? I know we're talking very, very low level here now because this is cellular health, but it's a really fascinating topic. So can you give us some details on that? And maybe some people are missing that, you know, the mitochondrial health, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something people can look at and don't even realize it's something that can be addressed. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are building blocks. Our cells are our building blocks. So sometimes, you know, when we talk about, you know, the entire system or, you know, an entire organ system or an organ or, you know, you know, sometimes we can't deal with all of it. Sometimes we just have to go back to the basics and go back to the cell. And if the cell isn't healthy, if the cell can't detox, if the cell can't talk to its neighbors, um, and it's just kind of sick, you know, and kind of running on fumes, then that's, you know, going to extrapolate to your entire system. So sometimes you just really have to go back to that cell and, and, and replenish it and build that up first. And so for me, part of that is phosphatidylcholine, which is the most important fatty um, acid of the cell membrane. And the cell membrane is really the brain of the, of the cell. And so sometimes they just have to repair that and try to help heal that membrane and replace, you know, some nutrients and um, minerals and things to just get everything on a, on that basic, basic level better. Um, so I'm, gosh, that, that's not, an, that's, I, I would keep talking to you forever about this as well. Cause you just, there's so much information out there and the cell danger response and all of these things, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating all the different things we can do to help ourselves heal. And sometimes you just got to go back to the basic building blocks, put those back together. Well, Dr. Kelly, we, we can't thank you enough for taking time away from your family and from your practice to share this uh, brilliant information with our community. Um, we are going to put this up as a podcast folks. So if, um, if you want to re-listen to this, uh, it will be up for a short time on our Instagram, but it will be a, it will be a podcast. The last year's version of this, Dr. Kelly, actually had over 7,000 downloads when it was put up as a, as a podcast. So again, thank you so much for your generosity and all that you do for our community. You are, you're an absolute blessing to, uh, to all of us in the uh, Lyme disease community. Thank you guys. And you guys are awesome too. Thank you so much for getting the word out and for being so instrumental and in, in bringing all of this great information to the masses. Thank you. And just some quick details. So the podcast is going to drop on June 15th. This will be up for about a day on our Instagram, and then it's going to come down until the podcast. And we do have a Dr. Casey Kelly webpage now on our website where it has your original podcast about your Lyme story. It has your, your Lyme disease awareness month live from last year, all about this kind of cool stuff. And this one, it gets posted to go there as well. And it has all kinds of stuff about your background, how people can you know, find more about you, work with you as a Lyme litter doctor. And we encourage everybody to go check that webpage out. And if you're looking for a Lyme Leader doctor to reach out to Dr. Kelly and her great team at Casey Integrative Health, they are really, really wonderful. Rich is treated with them. And some of the advice that you've given us, Dr. Kelly, has really helped transform my health. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. And thank you for joining us tonight. And happy Lyme Disease Awareness Month. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You have a great night. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to our Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Dr. Casey Kelly, Lyme Literate Medical Doctor. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, 
If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Kelly, please visit her on Instagram at Case Integrative Health or visit her website at caseintegrativehealth.com. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 300 episodes for specific keywords, subscribe to our email list, or even share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.